how I got here. The inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. Hello there, welcome. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to another episode of How I Got Here. These are Mozio and FocusWise uh, weekly conversations where we get the backstory from entrepreneurs and innovators in travel and transportation. We are absolutely delighted this week to be joined by Ben Baldanza. Many of you will know him, but a quick biography for those that perhaps don't. He is a veteran airline executive who is perhaps best known as the CEO of Spirit Airlines from 2005 to 2016. Uh, He began his uh, long and checkered career in uh, aviation with American Airlines, I believe, and worked for Northwest, Continental, and Taka. Uh, He's credited with, um, I guess, say, turning Spirit into what many call or is a so-called ultra-low-cost airline. Uh, He now serves on the board of JetBlue and has many, many other interests in these uh, more recent years. So it's a, a very warm welcome, Ben. Thank you very much for joining us on How I Got Here for this episode. Well, thank you, Kevin. It's great to be with you. Okay. As always, uh, regular listeners will know we always like to start our podcast off with a, a very simple question. And that's, uh, if you could tell us, Ben, how did you get here? <laughs> well, great. Well, I grew up in a small town in upstate New York. And when I was very young, just 12 years old or so, I got a paper route. And that's when people read newspapers, right? And, uh, and I delivered papers. It was, a, it was a morning paper. The town I lived in published an afternoon newspaper, but the town 15 miles away published a morning paper. And so everyone in the town got the evening paper. Not everyone got the morning paper. So my route was geographically fairly large. And in many cases, I served, you know, just one or two houses on a block. And it was a morning paper, so it was a morning route, so I'd do this before school. But in that job, that's where I learned everything that I needed to learn about business, at least at that point in my life, because I essentially was a wholesaler who bought the, then never thought about it in those terms at the time, but I bought the papers wholesale from the newspaper company, and I sold them to my customers. I had a collect from them, and I sold them to them at retail. And I remember still the very first week I had this job is after I collected all the money and I paid my bill, I had about $14 left. And it was just the greatest feeling in the world that that was my money that I had earned from something I had done. And it was, that's what turned me, I guess, into a capitalist that day, in a sense. Right? <laughs> and also, also in that job, I learned some ideas that helped later on too, the ideas of sort of a average and marginal costs and things like that. I know that sounds crazy, but like I might deliver to two houses on a block, but I was riding my bike and I went by all these other houses. So after I got a little confident, I would buy like five extra papers every week and I would deliver to houses that didn't subscribe. And I'd say, I'm giving you this paper for a week. I hope you enjoy it. Let me know if you want to subscribe. And in that process, over a couple of years, I more than quadrupled the subscriptions of the newspaper, but didn't have to like ride my bike any further, right? Because because I was now I just stopped at more houses. So that's all you want to know about paper outs. But fast forward now, <laughs> go to college, I get a degree in economics, I go to Princeton University and got a degree in their public policy school. 
but really wanted to focus on transportation because I thought transportation just provided a really great complex set of things that included government and labor and big capital and networks and all kinds of things and got a job out of college at American Airlines. Like you said, that's where I started. And that was back in 1986. The U.S. airline industry was deregulated for price and scheduling in 1978. And in the 1980s, American was a very innovative company to work with. They were led by a guy named Bob Crandall, who's well known in the airline industry. And Bob Crandall was a finance guy. So he had a big finance department. And that's where I went to go work in. And American didn't make big decisions about anything, about fleet, about labor, about marketing, about routes, without having the finance department sort of doing analysis on that. So working at American Airlines was almost like postgraduate work in a sense. I got to work on a lot of great projects at a company that was very, it was growing very fast, moving ahead very forward, and was very innovative. In that time in the 1980s, American developed things that are really common today, like frequent flyer programs and hub and spoke networks and using computer systems for reservations and things like that. I then went on to work at a couple of different airlines, and in each case, sort of followed someone I had worked with who moved, and they hired me, and in each case, whether Northwest or Continental or Taka, in all cases, sort of expanding my, um, my experience base. Started in finance, then moved into marketing, but really the more technical side of marketing, like pricing and scheduling airplanes and things like that. And then at Taka was my first experience actually managing a P&L. Um, up to that point, I had been, you know, gotten to sort of a C-suite kind of role at Continental Airlines and was the EVP of marketing, but still just was running the revenue side of the business. And at Taka, I had to think about all the business. I had to think about all the employees. I had to think about the, the, the cost side as well as the revenue. And even though it was a smaller company, it really sort of opened my eyes as to how fun that could be. I then spent six years at U.S. Airways. And um, U.S. Airways initially was a company that was growing and was trying to establish how it would compete as the sixth largest airline in the U.S. But then after 9-11 and the effects of that, the airline went into a bankruptcy process. And you learn a lot in bankruptcy, for sure. And I went through the first process with U.S. Airways, not proud to have worked with a company that necessarily to say proud that we went in bankruptcy, but you learn a lot in that process and you learn about what has to be done with that. And then, and then after emergence from the airline's first bankruptcy, it went through bankruptcy twice, I got recruited to go to Spirit. And Spirit had been bought by a private equity group in 2003 called Oak Tree Capital. And Oak Tree bought Spirit on a relatively simple and with perfect hindsight, somewhat naive um, basis, which is if we bring new airplanes to this airline and we bring some people who know how to manage an airline, maybe we can spin this relatively quickly. JetBlue had gone public in 2002 and they were looking at that as a potential valuation and so on. So I went to Spirit in 2005 and over the next 11 years, we we transformed the airline, me and some of the team that I brought there and recruited there, transformed the airline into what we, we called an ultra low cost carrier. We, we came up with that term because we didn't want people to compare us with Southwest, who everybody thought of as an LCC or a low cost yeah. carrier. And our first inspiration, you'll like this, Kevin, was really Ryanair in Europe. And we said, well, let's look what Ryan's doing and how can we be more like them in terms and so to to, to make all this happen, we came up with a, we had an epiphany one day where we said, we're going to compete for customers on a different basis than all of our competitors. 
most airlines compete for customers by saying we're gonna we're gonna make you more comfortable on board or we're gonna get you to any place on the planet you want to fly or we're gonna reward you with all kinds of points. You can take your family to a great place after you pay us a lot of money for your business travel, right? Or anything like that. And we said at Spirit, you know, we're too small to compete on that kind of basis. We're never gonna have as many planes as an American or a Delta or a British Airways or something like that. We're not gonna have big planes to fly across the either ocean or either of the big oceans anyway, right? And, um, and so we gotta be different. So we said, we're just gonna be the lowest price. And we're gonna to cater to customers who care about price as the reason they pick one airline or the other. And to do that, we said we gotta do a couple of things. First of all, we gotta forget about business travelers because business travelers are gonna care about the time of the schedule and sitting in a really nice seat and maybe waiting in a lounge or something like that. So we said we won't carry any business travelers and we'll, we'll do everything we can to make our product really simple and get all the costs out to make our cost of production really low. And then we'll also unbundle the tickets. And so we noticed at the time, for example, that only 70% of our customers check bags. And we said, well, what about the 30% that don't? Why should they have to pay for the bag belts and, the, and all the people that have to carry the bags in and out of the airplane and things like that? Why don't we lower our ticket price and then only charge the people who want to check bags for the bags? And starting that process, we started a whole series of things that created a whole new series of revenues for the airlines that the airlines now call ancillary revenue. Um, yeah. At the time I joined Spirit, our, our average ticket price was about $105 on an average two-hour flight, to give you an example of what that price was. And we collected about $5 after the ticket from customers, usually for any maybe alcohol they bought on board. Right, or or, um, or if in some cases, if they bought you know um, really heavy bags or checked three or four bags, so there wasn't much to charge for that. Um, by the time I left Spirit, our average ticket price was around sixty dollars, so it had dropped from one hundred five down to sixty dollars. But our collections after the ticket were at fifty five dollars, so we were collecting a little more money in total. But, but customers could pay a lot less if they would not carry bags and such. And that whole process of spirit created a lot of consternation in the media. Um, my favorite of those was in 2010 when we announced we were going to charge for carry-on bags. We were the first airline in the world to do that. That, that uh, resulted in a resounding media thud. 100% of the media after that was negative. <laughs> like, this can't be good for the world, and this is just terrible. And so we decided, well, we still think it's a good idea, and we were thought knew it would improve our operations. We were gate-checking a lot of bags. We had kind of created our own problem in a way because we had charged for check bags but didn't charge for carry-ons. So people brought a lot more on board, but we had a lot of seats on the planes and couldn't fit all the bags in the overhead bin. So we said, well make an economic solution to that problem and charge for the carry-on too. By the time the process started a few months after we announced it, it actually ended up working really well. And now customers understand that and such, yeah. but it took a lot in the media to sort of get people to understand why it might make sense. So, um, so that if I hadn't worked at Taka, a smaller company, if I hadn't spent time in finance and marketing at bigger airlines before that, I probably never would have been successful at Spirit also learning to work with great people and knowing who, who can do jobs well and who can't, that was really important at Spirit. So there are a lot of things that came together in the Spirit experience. And I'm really happy with where that company has, 
you know, what that company did and how that company has continued to grow even after I've left. Now I serve on the boards of a couple different companies, some airline, some non-airline, and try to help them think how can they disrupt their industries and how can they lower their costs and improve their revenues and some. And that's what my life is like today. And I really enjoy that. There are about 15,000 questions that we could probably ask you because it's <laughs> such a long, a long and um, uh, maybe glittering, but also very kind of varied career, all the different things that you've done. And it's difficult to know where to start. Um, well, I really will ask you because you were one of Bob Crandall's so-called Brat Pack, right? With yes. um, Tom Horton and David Cush and Doug Parker, all, who all went on to have distinguished careers as well. I mean, what's the one thing that you learned from Bob Crandall that you've kind of taken on perhaps in all of the jobs that you've had since that time at American? Well, in my first few months at American Airlines, I went to... Um, what was called a president's conference. Usually at the beginning of the year, Bob Crandall would host conferences around the system and just give an update on the company and answer questions from employees. And I went to one of these uh, in my first few months in the company. And after giving a presentation about the company, he was taking questions. And at one point, he points to someone in the front of the audience and said, everybody, this is Bob. And I don't know if that was his name or not, but he's the General Manager of our Oklahoma City Station. Bob, tell everyone here how much you spent on rags last month in Oklahoma City. And Bob like says something and he goes, I'm telling all of you station managers right now, if you run a station and you don't know how much you spend on rags, you don't know enough about your station. And as a, as a kid, you know, 20, 22, 23 years old out of college, or 24 years old, I guess, at that point, out of college, and hearing this very powerful speaker, this guy well-known in the industry, talking about rags at a station as the level of detail you needed to understand to run an airport station, it really impressed me in terms of both how detail-oriented the company was going to be and how much they wanted to really understand the business they were in. So I was working in the finance department, which was a terrific area to work in at that point. And the people you mentioned were there and a lot of others too that have gone on. Some have stayed at American and some have gone on to run big airline and other travel kind of companies as well. And it was just a really exciting environment where there were smart people who were willing to work hard, willing to work long hours, and were excited about helping the company make good decisions around what fleet should it fly and what route should it fly and how should it structure its contracts and things. And in that process, I just got, I got to build good financial models. I got to work with a lot of great people and talk about the way they thought would think about solving problems. And it really helped um, set my mind, I guess, in a good business sense that really helped me in everything I did after I left American. Yeah, there are, there are some airline bosses or bosses of many organizations that pride themselves on knowing everything about everything in the organization and i wonder if if you are a, a detail kind of person in that way that you know a little bit about every single department rather than some ceos or company bosses that hope that they surround themselves with enough people that know everything that that's enough for them are you which, which one of those do you fit into is it well, the former or the latter well i think the reality is i don't think bob crandall knew what oklahoma city spent on rags but i think he expected but i think he expected that guy to know right and so <laughs> the reality is as you as you get into bigger roles and as you're managing more people in bigger and more processes 
it's, it becomes impossible to sort of know everything going on. So you do have to yeah. trust people and you do have to hire people that you trust and such. But, you know, I have a 13 year old son right now today. And, um, and one of the things I've told him since he was very young is that it's not good enough just to be busy. You have to be busy doing the right things. So that idea of prioritization, I think, is very important. I think it's important in life, but it's really important in business. So by the time you're a CEO of a company, as I was at Spirit, you know, there's only 24 hours in the day. So I had to make sure that I was spending my time on the things most important to Spirit and Spirit's customers and employees and shareholders. And it was very easy to stay busy as a CEO but I could be busy doing things that weren't that important or doing things that were most value to the company. And that's, that's where I would spend a lot of my time is thinking about what's the most important thing and making sure my people were working on the things that are most important for them to work on. I, I'm assuming you're, you, you're encouraging your son to start a paper round. It's about that. We don't think about the, what the 2020 version of that is. It's not <laughs> yeah, indeed. David. <laughs> So Ben, yeah, uh, first of all, thanks for joining uh, us on our podcast here. Uh, you mentioned that you, you know, were trying to imitate Ryanair, and I feel like every American who returns from their European backpack trip asks themselves, you know, why, why is there not a similar kind of service you know, here? And I know that obviously Spirit has, you know, a, a frontier and an allegiance. There's been a, uh, an attempt, but I, I think, uh, you know, I'm curious, where do you feel like you... Um, were able to give an equivalent kind of Ryanair experience. Where did you fall short, and what are the ex- what, what are the differences, and why don't we have exactly the same sort of budget airline infrastructure that Europe has? Well, you know, Ryanair, in addition to being the largest airline in Europe in terms of they carry more people than anyone else, and being a very you know profitable company for a long time, they also built a reputation of being um, of not necessarily being the most customer friendly company in the world, and. Their CEO, Michael O'Leary, who's a, who's a very, very successful guy, you know, was, has been quoted multiple times with things like saying, like, what part of non-refundable did you not understand? <laughs> and so when, when we were at Spirit, you know, we, we had our own customer issues that we had to deal with, but we also had set up early a four-part customer proposition. We said, we're going to be the lowest total price you'll pay. We're going to be clean we're going to be reliable, and we're going to be friendly. And we said, if we can do those four things, we can win a lot of customers. Now, we're not going to be flying high frequency between routes, so we're not going to win a lot of business customers. And I can still charge you for anything you're going to eat or drink on board, but still be clean, friendly, and reliable, right? And so if anything that can help me be the lowest price, we said that's a good combination. Now, the reality is in my 11 years at Spirit, we did some of those things better than others. We did the fare really well. We, um, we, we did reliable, not as well as we should have. And the company's got better than that since I've left, actually. And they've focused more on that. Um, but we've been pretty clean and we, had, we were inconsistent on the friendliness and we got better and better at that. And so I think it's important for companies to have not just vision statements, but practical ideas of what are they trying to deliver to customers and that idea of low price, clean, friendly, and reliable sort of drove a lot of what we did. And we built metrics around those things and we watched those things. And again, some were done better than others, but I think that was important. And the copying Ryan was around copying the success and really the unbundled nature of the product. We were really fascinated by the fact that another thing Michael O'Leary was saying regularly at that time was at some point, customers will pay nothing for the ticket. 
will collect so much after the ticket that you'll be able to board for free because we'll make enough money from the baggage fees and the seat fees and such. And I always thought he was just crazy. And when that, when I got at spirit, I realized I understand at least why he's thinking that because there's a lot of power in this ancillary revenue. And while that price may not go to zero, it can get quite low. And the lower it is, the more people who will fly. And so in a way, airlines like Ryan and Spirit create their own market because they stimulate travel that might not have flown otherwise. So, you know, follow-up question that you mentioned this stuff about reliable plus low cost, right? You know, Mozio, we run a, a ground transportation aggregator platform, and I often uh, have to navigate, uh, you know, corporate clients going, well, we want the, you know, the meet and greet limousine with a driver waiting for an hour, but at Uber prices. And you're just kind of like, uh, that doesn't exist. And, and it's, it's an incredibly hard you know, thing to have to, to tell someone. So how did you, you, clearly some of the things you mentioned, like reliability and cost, are, are there at, at loggerheads? Where did you, where did you figure out where that line was for you, where you said, this is a spirit brand, we're okay doing the Michael O'Leary thing and saying, did you not understand what unrefundable means? You know, and that's fine, we're going to piss off at these 10%, but did you think like, well, at 20%, that's too much. And, and how did you think about that? It's a great question, David. Well, you know, we, we didn't want to piss off any customers, right? <laughs> but we did want people to understand our product. And, and over time, we built what we called the Spirit Curriculum and explaining what it means to fly Spirit. And we wanted people to understand that well. Um, but it, it was a tough thing. I'll tell you the general rule that we used. We used a rule that we were unwilling or didn't want to sort of inflict certain cost on the company meaning that we know we will spend this money for prospective revenue. We'll spend this money and hope that people pay for it. That's what we tried to avoid was that idea. So for example, the whole time I was there, Spirit never had Wi-Fi on board. And let me tell you why I didn't have Wi-Fi because Wi-Fi is expensive to, to install on an airplane. It adds weight to an airplane. So the plane burns more fuel forever after you install that on every flight. And not a lot of people pay for it. Right? And so we didn't think, we thought that it would, yes, would more customers be interested in flying Spirit if we had Wi-Fi? Maybe, but we'd have to raise our ticket prices because the Wi-Fi wouldn't pay for itself. So we went to every Wi-Fi provider of airplanes at the time and we said, look, here's the deal. You install it on our airplane. You pay for the incremental fuel burn on the airplane for the life of the airplane. And then you charge whatever you want customers to pay and you tell us how much of that money you'll give us. Will you give us a penny of every dollar, two pennies of every dollar? And no company would work on that basis. And we realized at that time that their success was getting the plane, getting Wi-Fi installed on the planes. Our success needed to be making money from having Wi-Fi on the planes. So we didn't put Wi-Fi. That's an example of that idea of how we thought about it. That harkens back to when I worked at Continental, where I worked for a very innovative and smart leader named Gordon Bethune. And Gordon used to talk about the 15B rule. And the 15B rule was he would say, if you have an idea that's really good, go ask the customer sitting in 15B and see if they think it's a good idea. Meaning, is it, is it something that's going to make the customer experience better or make that person's fare cheaper or something or make them more reliable or something like that? And he said, that's really the, the screen. And so in a way, it was sort of an extension of that idea that I learned from Gordon years before. So what's interesting is I feel like you're 
displaying a, a character trait that I really admire here, which is like being almost hyper rational. And it almost <laughs> re reminds me of kind of the, uh, like, you know, Uber got, got a lot of shit for, uh, Know, surge pricing but like you know he also was like you know does this make sense you know higher demand raise the price right and you uh, you know basically it time and time again i'm, I'm like uh, you know seeing here you, you are demonstrating that like okay well they're pissed off about back fees but it, it makes economic rational sense we're just going to do it and, and it seems almost to be like a uh, a very ruthless streak to your management and i say that as a positive again to your management uh track record would you would you agree with that I, th I think I would, David. You know, there's, there's, a, there's something that I've learned in my career, which is companies that listen to what people say don't do nearly as well as companies that actually watch what people do. And if you ask somebody what they want from their airline trip, they will want the experience you described with your car service, right? They'll want a really comfortable seat and a really nice meal and an on-time flight and a really low fare. That's what they will want. So they may not want bag fees, but they really like low fares, right? And so the idea was we were going to approach it on that hyper-rational basis. You know, in 2012, we were interviewed by the NPR show Planet Money. They came down and spent a day with us, and they talked to customers who got off airplanes, and they talked to us at headquarters, and they were like, how is this airline? We had only been public for about a year, so our numbers were public, and they realized we were making a lot of money as an airline, and how can we make money when everybody hates us, right? That was sort of their premise, right? <laughs> And so they came down to talk about that, and at the end of the day, the two people, a man and a woman, were sitting in my office, and I was explaining the basis of why we made the decisions, and one of them said, you know, this sounds like an airline that was designed by an economist, which I immediately sort of, you know, plumped up in and felt really good about it until the other person said, but don't you know everyone hates economists? <laughs> and so there's, there's bad to that hyper rationality, David. No, I, I love Planet Money. That's, it's, I, I, but I get it. Like, I, you know, I, it seems to have won out, of course. But Kevin? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, I mean, I, I'm sitting here chuckling on mutes because of the you know the Ryanair kind of comparisons it's exactly true that people criticize and you know that Ryanair and certainly up until very recently and the madness that's been going on this year is an incredibly well-run airline and was very very profitable and carries hundreds of millions of passengers I mean it's just it is Europe aviation success story so that wasn't my quote that wasn't uh, it's just a comment but I'm interested uh, when you joined Spirit Airlines, they'd just been taken over by private equity, I think you said. When you were, um, let's assume you were interviewed for the job, do you sense that they knew what they were getting? How far you, how far that you, want, you wanted to take it? Or did you learn a lot about what you needed to do once you were on the job, as it were? I had some ideas, but I learned a lot there as well. The, the yeah. company that hired me, Oak Tree Capital, which was the yep. private equity firm that had bought Spirit from private owners, um, what they really liked about my background was the revenue side of the business. Their view of the business that time was that the company was operationally okay and had its costs generally in control, but that they just didn't get a high enough ticket price and they needed to be smarter in some of the technical ideas of revenue management and pricing. And here's a guy who's actually run an airline at Taka and been involved with big airlines in a couple different areas and maybe he can help us with that. And what I told them is, 
what, what I wanted from them before I went is I said, I, I need to have the ability to hire the people that I want to hire and, and structure the team the way I want to structure and make changes to the business that I think are going to make sense once I really understand what the business is. And they were open to that idea. So on that basis, I went to work there. Once I started going there and realized, well, let me tell you, let me tell you another story about another guy I worked for. I worked for, um, when I worked at Northwest, the CEO at the time was a guy named John Dasberg. And John Dasberg said once, the, the fastest way to stop losing money is to stop doing things that lose money. And a lot of people laughed at that statement, but John was exactly right. And the first thing I realized at Spirit was most of our flying lost money. So what I realized is we got we to gotta stop doing a lot of what we're doing and do something else. And that's when we started really changing where the airline flew from an airline that flew mostly from the Northeast and Midwest of Florida. We really started flying into the Caribbean where there weren't a lot of lower fares and there weren't a lot of low fare airlines there. And we said, we'll use our position in the Fort Lauderdale airport to exploit Caribbean and Northern, later Northern Latin America. And that started working for us. A year after I joined Spirit, Oak Tree partnered with another private equity firm called Indigo Partners that is more focused on sort of the ultra low cost carrier kind of world. And what Indigo brought to me and the company was really a better benchmark around the world. Don't just compare yourself to Delta and American and Alaska and JetBlue, compare yourselves to the best run airlines in the world, to the Ryanairs, to the Asia to the Air Asias and things like that. And that's what I think really converted me into, okay, we've got to go whole hog into this idea of really low cost. And that's when I started to go into bed every night and would ask my wife, how can I make the fare lower tomorrow? Tomorrow, what can I do <laughs> tomorrow to make the fare even lower? Right? And, and that was like 10 years of that. <laughs> that's a fairly strange pillow talk. It must be yeah, said then. Right. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, interesting because of your, your history prior to Spirit with American, with Northwest, with US Airways, with Continental and Tucker. I mean, by the time you started implementing all these um, ideas at Spirit and turning into, into the carrier of you know, your strategy and your backer strategy and everything, what did some of your former colleagues make of what you were doing? I mean, presumably they would have been friends still or good contacts and things like that. I mean, what kind of things were they saying to you about what you were doing? Essentially, because you were turning uh, one model on its head and taking it even more extreme, arguably. Well, first, I think they all thought I was crazy for going there in the first place. Right. I had this fairly nice, at least by title, this fairly nice job at U.S. Airways. I'm like, why would you go to this carrier that probably shouldn't even exist? But they, they thought that. Um, but once it was clear what we were doing, I think people really respected what we were doing. And in many ways, maybe thought we wish we could do that, but we're not that kind of airline. I remember one event that was an industry conference where I was I was actually sitting on a panel with two of the people you mentioned earlier, with Doug Parker, who at the time was the CEO of America West Airlines, and Tom Horton, who was the CEO of American Airlines. Today, Doug's the CEO and chairman of, of American Airlines. But at the time, it was Tom and Doug and me, and we all worked together at American Airlines, so I knew each other. And we were on this panel, and somebody asked a question about, uh, about, earn, about how high could margins go in the industry and what is a realistic cap for margin and i said well at spirit we're not going to ever let a route make too much money 
And they said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, if the route's making, you know, 18, 19%, we'd rather add another airplane and have two airplanes make 15% than one of them, than one of them make 19 or 20%. And Doug and Tom were on either my sides, both looked at me and said, we hate you. <laughs> and we all laughed about that. And so, uh, I think if you I think if you talk to people around the industry that worked with me earlier, I think they will generally say um, that it was we took a lot of risk at Spirit, but we proved out a concept that ultimately proved out pretty well. And I think the proof of that is around the industry. Things like basic economy fares are more common now, which is really a Spirit match fare, and use of ancillary revenue as a more productive way than things like. Um, uh, fuel surcharges and things like that. Yeah. Every airline charges for bags today, except for Southwest. And um, and so I think some of the things that seem crazy that we did have become a little more commonplace in the industry. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I regularly moderate the retail stream at the World Aviation Festival in London every September. And uh, a couple of years in a row, I've had a, a, someone from Spirit talking about the latest kind of retailing thing that they've come come to talk about this is in the last two or three years you know, since you've since you've left that airline, and ordinarily there are a lot more people in the room listening to the people from Spirit talking about things because I guess to your point, you know, it has gained a reputation of knowing how to do this kind of thing, right? So it's just it's just interesting as you say it's kind of held up as the example of oh damn I wish we could do that kind of thing. Yeah, you know I think that's right. And at one point when I was at Spirit, we we did a little we did got some data and estimated that even though we only carried about 1% of the passengers in the United States that spirit's name was mentioned in like 25% of every media story about airlines <laughs> and we realized that's because we sort of defined one end of the industry and yeah. you know in some cases it was at least it's not as bad as spirit or at least it's not like spirit or Spirit chose the answer this way, right? In some, it, there was all we were there for all kinds of different reasons, but we realized just how important our little one percent airline was in terms of moving industry mindset. Yeah, I mean, just before David comes on again, I mean, it's the the Ryanair model is 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 all publicity is good publicity, whether it's actually bad publicity. I mean, there's the legendary. Uh, uh, pay to have a P story, which was completely fabricated by their PR department just to get more people to talk about the airline at the same time as they were launching one euro uh, fares to, from London to Antwerp or something like that. You know, it was brilliant, brilliant PR. So, uh, David. <laughs> well, so, you know, Ben, you mentioned you know, deregulation at one point. You kind of came in right after and you mentioned Bob Crandall. And I don't want to say it's like well known, but it's, you know, someone understood that airlines like Pan Am that, you know, ushered in the jet age uh, actually didn't age well. And the type of innovation that actually kind of won out in a deregulated world is, um, you know, what you referred to, which was online booking and hub and spoke economics and stuff like that. And uh, there's a lot of new airline disruptors or, or I could say probably more urban aviation disruptors these days. And we've actually had Blade on the uh, the podcast as well. And I'm curious what your, you know, your opinion is of them. There's Surfair and some of them are focusing on new technologies, you know, uh, EV tolls, electric uh, vertical takeoff and landing vehicles. Others are working on kind of the network, uh, kind of building the, the proper network. How do you look at this new aviation market today? 
Well, among the many reasons I'm proud to be on the board of JetBlue is that JetBlue also has a subsidiary company called JetBlue Tech Ventures. And one of the things that JetBlue Tech Ventures does is they invest invested in, in us. <laughs> okay. Well, they invest in some of these companies, right? And in order to sort of not just know what is coming up, but be sort of, you know, more involved in helping to create what the future will be. And I think that that's really exciting. I think it's great that people are thinking of all kinds of ways to move. People need to move, I think. Economies need people to move. It's great that you can use Zoom or Microsoft Teams or you know the video platform of your choice to host a meeting once in a while. But the reality is human beings live off interaction with each other. Traveling is probably the easiest way to learn there is on the planet. You know, when I when my wife and I took my son to Vietnam last year and spent two weeks there, it totally changed his worldview. And there's no book he could have read or story we could have told him that would have done that without that without that trip. And so travel is important. It's important for economies and things. And so finding ways so that more people can connect and people can connect maybe at lower prices or maybe more quickly and things like that are great things for entrepreneurs to be thinking about. So in general, I really support the idea of companies like Blade, like um, like some of the electric aircraft people, not because Joby I- Aviation is the one that JetBlue is backed, right? Yeah, that's right. Not, not because I think that that's going to be next year's great new technology that everybody's going to use, but what it does is it starts to change people's view about what is possible and what can happen. And I think that that's great. I mean, the world is better off because of people like an Elon Musk, like him or hate him, right, who will think big and it will think ways to do things that the world hasn't thought about yet. And travel needs that kind of thing, those, that kind of thinking too. Well, just, you know, quick follow up on that. Do you, do you have like a particular angle about like, you so Blade's big idea is that like, we're not going to be the technology, you know, we're going to be, we're going to kind of create the network that then the EV tools plug into. Um, I, I think there's two theories of kind of like, you know, to grossly oversimplify it, two theories of like, of, you know, innovation is kind of the incremental Bob Crandall uh, you know, world or the, the one trip, like let's get jets in there kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, I think philosophy of that. I'm curious if you look at like what's going on, do you have, a, do you fall on one side of the spectrum? That, that, that's a great question. Um, I think companies that can create value without as much capital that's sometimes called capital light, I think is where the most money can be made and the most innovation can be made. When you have to burden the company with really expensive capital, which is what airlines are all about, right? Even a, even a relatively common 737 or Airbus A320 is a $40 million asset, plus or minus, right? And so when you can grow a company with, with um, technology, with code, with ideas, with an app and things like that and create the kind of value that an Uber's created, or, or, or things like that. I think that to me is where the most efficiency and the most um, excitement can come from. That doesn't mean that there aren't companies that are gonna be capital intensive that aren't gonna be great companies too. I don't mean that, but fundamentally there's just more risk in that business. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, one more uh, kind of maybe controversial question here. So you, we just, my last line I think it was around deregulation here. And so to go back to that, um, a lot of people have said that, you know, there hasn't been enough regulation in the past five to 10 years. We've got, I think, four carriers, Alaska, just bought Virgin, right? And, and basically a consolidation that a lot of people are saying has prices r- uh, rising. 
um, you know, if you were president or, or, or president of the TSA or whatever, TSA head, I don't know what it is these days, um, uh, you know, what, you know, what would be your prescription for how, like, you know, we, we potentially, or if, if, if it's, we should be doing more of the same, I'm curious, what do you, how do you view the airline regulation market? Well, I think there's regulation in the airline business that is, that makes sense and that is important. Regulation around our airplanes safe to fly. I mean, the, the crash of the two 737s, part of the investigation of that was all around how did that plane get certified, right? And I think government and regulators have a role to play in ensuring that planes are properly maintained, that pilots flying planes are properly trained and they know what to do, and, and that um, there, aren't, there aren't too many planes trying to land at the same time and one runway, right? I think regulations around safety, and around the process of flying and the mechanics of flying make perfect sense and keep everyone safe. It's the reason that the U.S. has collectively an extremely safe air system. And around the world, the people look to the United States as the model for safe commercial airline operations. And I think regulation in that, in all of that area, everything the FAA does, for example, I think is really, really good. I'm not saying that they couldn't do it better. Everyone can do anything better. But collectively, that's really good. What I don't particularly like is regulation on the commercial side of the business. I believe that companies are much more innovative than government. And I think that customers are willing to test and try all kinds of things. So where you can fly, how you can charge, how you can distribute your product, what you should sell as long as it's transparent and clear and things like that, I think that should largely be unregulated. Now, the Department of Transportation has played a little in both camps a little bit. They, for example, there is a law in the United States called the, um, the 24-hour rule that if you buy an airline ticket for any reason at all within 24 hours, you can just get a refund on that. Say, I decided I don't want to fly or I found a better fare somewhere else and such. And I understand the consumer appeal of that, but that's very expensive for airlines. They, they sell a spoilable product. That seat is not available for sale to someone else while you bought that seat. And if you decide 24 hours later to release it, well, maybe that seat will never sell again, but would have sold while it was there. And so that's the kind of law that I don't really understand the value of that regulation. If now maybe we have a perfect example in Southwest, Southwest markets their airline saying, we don't have a lot of extra fees. We don't charge for bags. We don't charge for change fees. The rest of the industry charges for bag and charge for change fees. But if you want to fly an airline that doesn't charge for bags, you can go fly Southwest, right? I think the market post deregulation, the market has provided wonderful solutions. Delta is not JetBlue. JetBlue is not Spirit. Spirit is not Southwest. They all fly airplanes, but they all approach the business differently. They all have different sensibilities around the customer and where they go. And that's a much better world than if every airline were Delta or every airline were Spirit. Um, we get variety in the restaurants we go to. We get variety in the cars we buy, all at different price points because we realize that that creates a good economy and different people are going to want different things. So I, I tend to want to push against regulation on the commercial side of the business where around pricing, scheduling, uh, the commercial activities and the, and the airline's relationship with its customer, but love the regulation around the safety and the operational efficiency to keep everything safe. 
that's my view of it generally, Dave. Okay, so uh, we're coming up to the uh, the end of the podcast, um, Ben. So uh, one final question then for me, really. I mean, how I got here, our podcast is very much about exploring um, people's lives through their careers and, you know, almost uh, for many of that have had a very seasoned and varied career as yourself, you know, kind of getting people to talk about their legacy, which you've done very eloquently. I mean, my, my question is this. I mean, there's, there's three distinct communities here. So there's the AV Geek community that's one there's the financial world that's two and then there is the staff at spirit right so those three communities what would you say those three communities would say about you and your legacy <laughs> okay well well let's start with the uh, with the av community i think what they would i think what the av community would say is that reluctantly spirit is sort of proven that there are people who want what spirit offers and maybe that doesn't make them happy in the first place, like that they would rather, and they can certainly choose not to fly an airline like Spirit. But secretly, I think many of them do fly Spirit, actually. And, uh, yeah. and they think about that. And I, and I think ideas that are different are often perceived as negative at first. And a lot of the changes at Spirit were that way. But over time, I think people have recognized the fact that there are different airlines that approach things differently is better for consumer than one, than the other. The second is the financial world. I think a lot of people made a lot of money on Spirit Airlines. And, <laughs> and uh, I remember during our, um, during our IPO roadshow, when we were convinced, trying to convince companies when we were going to go public, you should buy shares of this company. A lot of the questions came around is like, how are you possibly valuing this company as high as you are? Like, we don't, yeah. we don't see growth here. We don't see a lot of valuation. And we ultimately IPO'd at $12. And at one point, the stock was traded in the 80s. I mean, today in a COVID world, obviously, all airline equities are, are depressed in a big way. But um, I think the financial community has come to recognize that the the hyper-rational approach that we, that we took Spirit into and the way we managed that company was really well-received by the financial community. I will tell you one more story if there's time for it. During yeah. the IPO Roadshow, this was in 2011. So it was a year, uh, a year, almost exactly a year after we announced the carry-on bag. We had, been, we had been charging for the carry-on bags for maybe nine months at that point. But we were um, talking to this one group of people at, a, at some fund and we were explaining the business and we were talking about the carry on bag fee. And one of the guys said, wait a minute, you mean you charge to carry a bag on board? And we said, yes, we do. And he leaned back and he said, that makes such perfect sense. And it was the very first time in my role in spirit, spirit CEO where I ever heard that reaction to the charge. for <laughs> And I realized the financial community got it instantly of why it makes sense, where the revenue upside is, why customers are still gonna carry bags on board and pay for that, how it'll yeah. make the boarding, deplaning simpler. So I think the financial community would, would say, um, Spirit has been a really good run and is, and is still a good investment in the airline space if you're gonna invest in the airline space. To the Spirit staff, I think most of them would be really thankful to, for the changes that Spirit made. We created a lot of jobs that paid well and that were very stable for people. Um, when I first got to Spirit, what a group of pilots told me is that nobody saw a career at Spirit. They came to work at Spirit to get enough hours and fly a bit until they could then go work at a real airline, right? <laughs> right? That was it. 
right? By the time I left Spirit, Spirit was creating great careers for pilots. And in fact, we were a great place for pilots to come because they would get upgraded from the right seat to captains more quickly at Spirit because we were growing faster than if they worked at a bigger airline. So I think the staff at Spirit would say, you know, it was a bumpy ride at times and we weren't always the most popular person at parties in our neighborhood. But overall, we're really happy with what Spirit did because it created a real stable, viable employment for me. That's, that's great. No, thank you for being so honest about that. So um, thank you for being a really great guest for us this week, uh, Ben. That was great. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Kevin and David. I really enjoyed this and, uh, and I, and I uh, look forward to listening to your podcast going forward as well. Sounds like you bring in some great guests and me not included in that, but some of the people <laughs> you talked about sounded really good. No, you're very humble as well. So um, thank you very much. So uh, you've been listening to another episode of How I Got Here. For those of you that haven't subscribed, you can do so by uh, ticking that box on uh, Spotify and all the other different places where you can download and listen to How I Got Here. Leave us a review. It's always good to hear people's feedback. It's really nice if you give us a very high rating. That helps us spread the word even further. So uh, that's all from us, from David and I, this week. This was how I got here. This is uh, Mozio and FocusWise, weekly podcast where we talk to the innovators and entrepreneurs in travel and transportation. Once again, thank you very much to Ben. Thank you very much, Kevin. And uh, thanks ever so much to everybody for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.